Well, the title of this morning's sermon is We Know, and then because I'm on a roll here, Part 3. We Know, Part 3. And I know that's a really scintillating title, but that's how John has chosen to summarize his letter of 1 John with three summary statements that all begin with that phrase, we know. And then rehashing or summarizing some of the critical truths that he's been trying to bring out that support his primary point, which is that God intended for mankind to experience a life that's lived closely to him in fellowship with him and that that's where maximum joy in life can be found is in his presence. So that's been the overarching point of this letter. Uh, So I hope that when this is all said and done, you're going to be able to take that away and that will be your summary statement of the book, that you'll be able to communicate that to others, that as you've been sitting here and listening to this book being taught, that verse by verse through this book, we're going to have probably one more message on this to wrap up the last verse, but that that's what this book is about. It's about how God wants to live life with you. And I was thinking about we know and all of the things that John could have communicated, but he chose to focus on that topic of fellowship and how fellowship is what will bring joy to your life. And he he wanted these people that he was writing to, other believers that he was close to, he wanted them to understand that truth. But when you think about all of the amazing truth that God communicates in his word, that's just one of them. There's any number of them that you could focus in on or, or think about, but they're there's so many that are amazing. And I was even just out of, I didn't know if I should mention this or not, but I, I will. There's, there's a photo that I had seen a few years back, uh, shortly after I uh, started here. I hadn't seen it before that, and I wasn't aware of it before that. But um, as I was just wandering around the building shortly after I started, there was a photo that caught my eye of uh, Pastor Leonard Radke's tombstone. And on his tombstone... This entire verse, 1 John 5.20, is what is on, on that memorial. And you think of all of the verses in the Bible, so many of them containing just amazing revelation and truth about who God is. That's the one that was chosen. And you think there must be a lot there. You know, he, he was at it a lot longer than I've been. And if that's the verse that was chosen, it, it really made me, it gave me pause even then when I saw it and I went and read it. I wasn't even that familiar with the verse, to tell you the truth. It wasn't one of the ones that was repeated or memorized over and over in Sunday school. It wasn't one that I recalled really that much. And the more I thought of it at the time, I thought, well, that's a really wonderful verse. There's a lot there, but I didn't give it any more thought. Now studying it as a summary statement of this entire letter, there's so much that comes out in it. So I want you to consider this group of truths that are contained in this one single verse. Contained in this one verse that we're going to look at this morning is this idea that God is a relational God. There's this idea that he designed you to have a relationship with him. There's this idea that God wants you to know him in an intimate and experiential way. And conversely, then, there's this idea that he wants to know you intimately and experientially. And if you think about that grouping of truths, that God is relational, that he designed you to have a relationship with him, 
that he wants you to know him intimately and experientially and that if he wants you to know him, then he must want to know you experientially and intimately too? Doesn't that just blow you away to think of that group of truths? That who am I that the God or the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? You know, we keep seeing it as our song of the month over and over. And listen, I know that it's not everyone's cup of tea, but that phrase, who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? That's straight from the word of God. Who, who is man that God is mindful of, of him? Why? It should blow you away to think that God, the God of the universe, wants to live life with you. Not only is he interested in you, not only does he notice you, not only did he provide a way for you, but he wants to live life with you. He wants you to experience intense, intimate fellowship with him. Not some of the time, all of the time. And the more you think about that, it should leave you speechless. It should overwhelm you to think that God would care that much about you. Now what's sad and what's tragic and what John's been getting at in this letter is that we hear that, we know that intellectually, but we've got better things to do. We've got more important relationships to attend to. Now, it's not to say you don't have important relationships, even though I was giving Anna grief last night about not having friends because she kept shooting shots and making them over me. I told her that's not the way to make friends. Probably not a lot of people like you for that. So friendships and relationships are important, but not. how could that compare to the primary relationship that God wants to have with you and I think it's just, that's, what, that's why that verse was chosen. I don't know that for a fact, but it has to be why that verse was chosen. There's so much to just leave you absolutely speechless in this verse. And we're going to unpack it a little bit here today. We certainly won't cover all of the depth that you could pull from this verse, but we're going to do our best to unpack it and look at some of the truth that is just jammed into this summary statement of sorts for the entire book of 1 John, because even though all three of these are summary statements, this is the penultimate conclusion that John is trying to get at and has been trying to get at, and it's found here in verse 20. For context, we're going to turn to chapter 5, verse 18. We'll pick up from there. We'll read these all three of these we knows, so we have that context in mind. So if you haven't already, please turn to 1 John chapter 5. We'll pick up in verse 18. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. Now, we covered that. We've covered it twice, really, because it was mentioned in chapter 3, I believe, verse 9 as well, that general idea. We brought out the idea that, or the, the meaning, that what John is getting at is that sin is never a manifestation of the new nature or the Spirit of God leading in your life. That which is born of God, meaning originating in God or directed by God in your life, is never sin. And so he's been telling these believers over and over again that sin, 
interferes with the desired outcome of the entire Christian life, which is that you would be in fellowship or live life with God, that you'd be walking in union with him, that you would be being led and directed by his spirit working in your life. But John knew that for so many people, we walk through life with this perceptual, perpetual deception where we have this inflated view of our own spiritual state of being, where we go through life with this enhanced perception that we think we're doing so much greater than we actually are. We think we're enjoying fellowship. We think we're living for the Lord. But John is saying, no, here's a few litmus tests. Here's a few different examples that if this is currently true in your life, then at the same time, you can't be being led by God's Spirit because God's Spirit would never be reflected in your life or manifested in your life in these ways. And one of the things that he brought up was sin. It was just one of many. But if you're presently sinning, you're not presently being directed by God's Spirit. They can't go together at the same time. They're oil and water. They don't, they don't mix. And so John was wanting to remind them of that as one of his conclusory statements here that just remember, sin is absolutely incompatible with the new nature and the Spirit of God working in your life. Remember that. Don't be deceived. Don't deceive yourself. Don't allow others to deceive you into thinking that you can serve God and serve self at the same time. That you can choose righteousness and choose unrighteousness at the same time. Now, we're so fickle. We're such strange creatures where we rationalize and justify all kinds of things in our lives where we want to, as the saying goes, have our cake and eat it too. Where we want to say, I'm all in for Jesus while at the same time holding back all of these different areas in our lives. Saying, I want to let the Lord lead and direct while at the same time saying, but not in these ways saying, I want to allow the Lord to produce his manner of thinking, his manner of living, his manner of speaking, his actions in me. I want him to use me, but I also want to do my own thing as it relates to these other things. And we try to piece together this way of life that can satisfy our flesh and also tune in a little bit to the new nature at the same time. And the friends, that's just not possible. It's one or the other. It's either walk by means of the Spirit of God or walk under the influence of the flesh. Walk by means of the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you're doing one, you won't be doing the other and vice versa. But we always are trying to figure out a way to do that. If we spent as much time trying to get our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances onto the Lord, our faith life would be amazing. But we spend so much time trying to have it both ways, trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in spiritual matters. Letting the Lord lead in one area, but kind of trying to keep control of another area. And that's what John was kind of getting at in that first summary there in verse 18, is that that manner of living that is incompatible with God, it's certainly not being produced by God's Spirit in you if that's what's happening at a particular point in time. Again, this isn't about am I saved or not. This is about am I enjoying, practically speaking, present tense, am I enjoying a manner of living that is in tune with or in fellowship with God at a particular point in time? Or practically speaking, am I failing to appropriate the blessings and the promises and the access to a life of faith that God has put right in front of me? Now, verse 19, we know 
What else do we know? That we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And that's, we'll get to it in a second, but I would summarize that as just saying, which side are you on? Positionally, what side are you on? Are you in Christ or are you still in Adam? Are you dead in trespasses and sins or have you been made alive because of a point-in-time decision to accept by faith what Jesus Christ did completely on Calvary? Where he didn't take care of just a little bit of your sin problem, he took care of all of your sin problem. Where he didn't make salvation just partially available and you'll do your part to carry it across the finish line he made it completely available if you would just accept the gift of great gift by grace that he's extending to you of salvation through the person and work of his son and then practically which side are you on at any point in time practically you are there's two sides to pick from He says we are positionally of God, but we are also practically of God presently if we're living a life that's directed by his spirit. Then the question becomes, but what's the alternative? The alternative is that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. That's the other alternative. So which side are you on? Practically speaking, as a Christian, not even talking about the lost, we know what side they're on. What side are you on at any moment in time? And can the Christian be be practically living like he's lost? And we said, yes. John said, yes. He's saying, don't. He's saying, you could, but don't do that. Don't waste your life in that way. So then we come to verse 20 now. I say, this is the the conclusion, the the real conclusion or the, I don't know how else you'd want to say it, but this is what we've been building to. And we know, now what else do we know? That the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that, with what purpose in mind, that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So let's dive a little deeper here. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding and understanding that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ this is the true God and eternal life so a little bit of review here on we know since this has been used several times now third time in a row but it had actually been used earlier in the chapter too same word but we again just reminding you this isn't a book of evangelism John was the gospel of John was written for the purpose of evangelism so that people might get saved from the penalty of their sin. We talk about past tense salvation. We call that justification. So if you're making a chart here, you got past tense justification. At a point in time, you're saved from the penalty of sin by either accepting or rejecting, but accepting the finished work of Jesus Christ on your behalf, which means at the same time you have to give up on self or any other human effort, which is not of works. It's all faith alone in Christ alone. At that moment that you make the decision to put all of your eggs in one basket, trusting in what Jesus has done for you fully, when you're doing that, that moment you're born again, you're sealed in the family of God. He says, I'll never let you go. You're determined now to be justified. We call it justification. A sinner is 
found to now be in a right standing with a holy God on the basis of the substitutionary work of Christ being credited to his account. And God now looking at that sinner can say, I can now experience an intimate relationship with this individual because that person is no longer identified with the sinfulness of Adam but is now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And because of that righteousness, now my righteousness can mix with that righteousness and it won't offend my sense of justice. It won't offend my character of holiness. And so at a point in time in the past, that happens. We, call it, we also would call that, uh, you could say that's positional sanctification too because at that moment you were set apart. Positionally, you were set apart to be a part of being in Christ. And to be in Christ is to be a Christ one, to be set apart for a particular purpose. But then you think about the middle of this chart. We think about second tense salvation, we call this, or present tense salvation. Refer to it as sanctification. Now remember, though, sometimes that's confusing because there is positional sanctification too. But we're talking in this middle section about present tense salvation. We're talking about having salvation from not the penalty of sin, but the power of sin to rule and dictate our lives to be in bondage to the sin nature. That bondage was broken by the cross and we've been given the ability now through the new nature and the empowering of the Spirit of God to choose, to make positive volitional choices about in this moment, each individual moment, am I going to choose to depend on and rely on the power of God's Spirit to work inside of me to transform me and change me into something different than I naturally was. This process, we call it progressive sanctification, this process of over time being transformed or changed a little by little into a more and more accurate or clear reflection of Jesus Christ. But that's a moment by moment ongoing battle. It's not guaranteed to be successful because there's a volition involved in there where you have to choose, am I going to appropriate by faith the victory that's been made available to me through the power of God's Spirit working inside of me or am I going to try to do this my way through my strength? If I try to do this my way through my strength, I'm going to fail every time. But if I'll depend on, get my eyes fixed on the author and finisher of my faith, get my look up, child, get my eyes vertical, think about eternal and heavenly things, and as that's true, and allow God's Spirit in those moments instead of resisting Him and fighting Him, but to let Him have His way in me. And as His Spirit is producing His manner of living in me, it's going to be a manner of living that brings God glory and ultimately brings me joy because in His presence is where fullness of joy is found. So we call that present tense salvation. Call that second tense salvation. Call that practical sanctification. So for those of you who are, are new, some of this might be a little bit hard to wrap your mind around. The third part of it is that the Bible talks about future salvation. We call that, the theological term is justif- or sorry, glorification. That one day we'll be in glory and we'll be free from the very presence of sin. So we had the penalty of sin that we were saved from at a point in time by faith in Christ. We presently have access to being having salvation from the power of sin that was broken at the cross. Victory is available. You'll have to choose every moment of every day. Now we're talking about salvation from the very presence of sin, which one day is guaranteed for every believer. So every child of God who has put their faith in him is guaranteed 
to have been saved from the penalty of sin. God says, I'll never let you go. Your trespasses were nailed to the cross. I cast your sin as far as the east is from the rest, from the west. I'm not holding your sin against you. There is no condemnation to them who are in Christ. Because you're in Christ, there's no condemnation. Guaranteed. This, not guaranteed. You may or may not appropriate at any point in time the victory that's available. This over here, future glorification, guaranteed. For every child, he will be glorified. One day, he'll be given a new body. He'll be given uh, an existence in heaven that's free from the very presence of sin. We'll never deal with sin again. Amen? Praise the Lord. (laughs) Who's ready? Who's ready? Okay, a few, few hands. The rest of you, get ready. Okay, get ready. This is coming whether you're ready or not. Okay, it's appointed unto men once to die. So we all have a date with death or the rapture. Let's pray that the Lord comes quickly. Let's have him take us home today. That's guaranteed. And that's called third tense salvation. That's glorification. So when you're going through theological things or you're reading through the word of God, it's very difficult to make hide or hair of the word of God if you don't understand that all three of those concepts are dealt with um, significantly or there's a lot of material dedicated to each one of those different things. And so we have to be clear about what we're talking about at any point in time. Now that was a little rabbit trail that came off of this idea that this book was written to believers. It wasn't written to them about how they could be saved at a point in time in the past, it was written about having victory in the Christian life, to enjoy life, this life, these moments in life, in the present, the way that God intended for you to enjoy them. So if you're new to this study, many people have absolutely butchered the book of 1 John because they've tried to make it about tests of the authenticity of your faith or how you could be justified before God when the whole book was written to people who already were saved people who were already in God's family, people who God had already guaranteed he would never let go. So that wasn't the issue that John was addressing at all. He was addressing, addressing the issue of how could believers make the most of and have fullness of joy in the life that's in front of them right now. And so that's why I bring up again that this we is John writing to include himself in this but also his believer audience. So then we talked about this no that's being used here is the Greek word oida, that it's referring to intuitive knowledge that's gained by instruction. It's not talking about experiential knowledge. It's talking about we were taught something that we could now, we now have knowledge about because somebody else shared it with us. It's known by believing in God's testimony. So who declared these things? Well, Jesus himself declared these things. And then as the first John started off with, John is saying, and now I'm declaring to you what was declared to me by Jesus himself. So it's reliable due to its supernatural source. That's why John is saying we can know this with a sense of confidence. He's not just saying we know this, but we're not quite sure about it. He's saying we know this because we were taught it from a supernatural source, Jesus himself, and I'm passing it on to you so that you could have absolute confidence in the reliability of this. So now we know this is the third of three concluding or summarizing statements. If I was going to summarize the first two, we did it already when we read through it, so we'll go quick here. Sin is never a reflection or manifestation of God's spirit. That's verse 18. And if you were going to expand on that a little bit more or try to put it in a nugget, what is John really saying? He's saying God has something better for you. God has something better for you. 
There's no reason for the Christian to be wasting his life away, seeking his own things, focused on himself, allowing his sin nature to direct, being influenced by the world around him. There's no reason for the Christian to waste life that way. God has something better for you. And that's all going to be a byproduct of whether or not you choose to live life with him. Because we've talked about this over and over. You can, you can get really off track in your Christian life if you make sin the focus of your Christian life. And what I mean by that is so many people, when they get that mindset where they're going to focus on their behavior, they're going to focus on whether they're doing the right things or doing the wrong things. When they get that focus, for starters, who is the focus? Self. So if you're focused on doing the right things or not doing the right things, that's your primary way of looking at Christianity. You're never going to have the right focus because you're now looking at self. You've got, the, you've got the spotlight shining right at you. That's destined to cause problems. That's guaranteed to cause problems. Because the Bible understand, understood correctly always informs us that the spotlight should be shining where? On him. So anytime you find the spotlight of your life and everybody has a light to shine, you can shine it wherever you want. God has made you a volitional creature who could shine that light wherever you wanted to. So if you're going to shine or put the focus of your life on self or on the world around you, failure, absolutely guaranteed. But if you're going to put that focus and shine that, shine that energy or that, that light on vertically on Jesus Christ, now he can provide victory. So what I mean by that is that, is sin important? Yes. Does God want you to live a life of sin? No. Uh, is God interested in the behavior in your life? Yes. Is he interested in whether his children are doing the right things or doing the wrong things? Yes. But how do we have victory? How do we have the right things manifest in us? Not by focusing on the right things, but by focusing on the one who can produce the right things in our lives. We're going to get to that because that is really what John is getting at here. That a life that would be characterized by my way of thinking, and if your life is characterized by my way of thinking, then it's going to be characterized by my way of speaking and my way of acting. And so if we can get the right thinking and we can have the right power source directing our lives, if God's Spirit is the one that is directing my life, if I'm walking by means of His Spirit and He's the one influencing my life, that's an issue of focus. That's an issue of where is my occupation? Where is my dependence? Where is my present faith in these moments? Is it on myself or is it on my Savior? Now, if it's on my Savior and I'm, I'm, I'm looking unto Him and I'm allowing Him then, to be the one that's influencing and directing my life. Who's going to produce the right manner of living in me? Him. Not me. And so that's why it's devastating to your Christian life if you start to believe that Christianity is about you producing a right manner of living in your life. It's about God producing the right manner of living in your life when you're a willing vessel that is allowing him to work in and through you. The only way you're going to be allowing him to work in and through you is when you're occupied with him, when you're living life with him, when your mind is stayed on him, when you're trusting him in the moments of life. So the fruit becomes a byproduct of an occupation instead of the goal or objective in and of itself. So so many preachers focus on changed lives 
And the reality is God will change your life. He wants your life to be changed. He wants nobody to even recognize you. He doesn't even want you to recognize yourself. That's how much, you talk about transformation, it means to make completely different. God isn't interested in doing a little bit of a light refresh, a light remodel on your life. He's interested in transforming your life, making it something completely different. Another coat of paint isn't going to help, friends. First of all, you're going to slop it all over anyway. It it never looks that good. But painting over the old isn't going to do anything. Throwing a fresh area rug in there, new piece of furniture, a few years, what's that going to look like? That'll look good for a moment or two till the kids start drawing on the walls with markers, till the dog starts scratching on the new woodwork, chewing the corners off the couch, till the glass of milk gets dunked into the carpet on the floor, whereas in our case recently, I hesitate to bring it up because it's a little bit still a little too fresh, but say she got a brand new area rug, not small, like 12, 12 by 12, a glass of black tea got uh, kicked by my son onto that carpet and it, it cannot be fixed. So talking about different ideas, my suggestion is if we just cut out the pattern in the middle, it can be a smaller area rug. If you've got ideas, let her know. He wants to change it. He wants to change us completely. How did I get there? He has something better for us. That's how I got there. That was verse 18. He's got something better, and sin isn't a part of that. But don't focus too much on sin. Next thing is, which side are you on positionally and practically? And really, it's you have a choice to make. You have choices to keep making. Which side are you on in the present moment? Are you going to live life as a child of God, as a prince of heaven, where you're appropriating practically that positional that position that you have in God's family, not through your own strength, but by getting your eyes on him, wanting to live your life with him, walking in union with him, staying close to him, leaning into him, however you want to put it, but being close to him. And so those same phrases, you know, for we know, are, are the words that began verses 18 and 19, This verse now represents John's climactic statement or primary conclusion. The rest of the conclusory statements that we've been looking at in verses 18 and 19, they build toward this. So this is what it's all been building toward. In my opinion, you'd be be hard-pressed to identify a more theologically significant summary than this that we're going to look at here this morning. This whole book, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find something more important than an exhortation to believers to live life in close proximity and in intimate fellowship with the God of the universe. It'd be hard to find something too much more important than that. And so that's all summarized right here. We'll get into it. Here, here it is. The Son of God has come. Now this is stated as a conclusory or a statement of fact. It's, it's a summary statement that is just absolutely loaded with meaning. So he's going to say, we know. Third of, the third thing, again, we're still talking about cognitively knowing here. 
Uh, this is the third thing that we know, and it starts with, it had to start with this. You're, it's a track of logic that you're following here. So in order to be living life with God, that, uh, the access to that life had to be made available first and foremost. So the Son of God has come. It's a reference to the person, the deity and humanity of Christ, the incarnation of Christ. So that word come, obviously, one, one part of that is referring to the incarnation of the unique God-man, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we had the opportunity to behold his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so as we're thinking about the incarnation of Christ, I was saying this the other day, Another, give you another little rabbit trail here because I can't help myself. One of the things that I struggled with as a young person it, it was never in believing that God was real. I never struggled with that. I, I never doubted my faith in that sense. And, and if you did, that's just a different path that you were on, but that wasn't, that wasn't the path I, I had. I always was 100% convinced that he was real, much like you'd be convinced that smoke billowing off of a fire was real. I, I never had any difficulty with that at all. But you know the thing about smoke? It's right there in front of you. It's visible. It's easy to be convinced that it's real. But you know what? It's really hard to grab. It's really hard to get a hold of smoke. It's really, it's really hard at times to get your hands wrapped around smoke. Even though you're convinced it's 100% real, it's really hard to personalize that or to, to really wrap your mind around that. And, and why was that? Well, I, I'm not sure exactly, but I think it's this. I think, I think it's because as a child, I was taught an incredible amount about who God is. And I'm so glad I was. But as I learned more and more about who God is, it made him seem harder and harder to get a hold of because he was nothing like me. So it was kind of, it was sort of, it had positives and negatives. The more I learned about him, let's pick some attributes that I thought as a, a child, but God is all-powerful. Yet I was acutely aware of the limits to my own power. God is all-knowing. Yet I would sit in front of an exam and be reminded of the limits of my knowledge. God is everywhere at the same time. Obviously, nothing like me God never changes. God is righteous and holy. God is king of everything. And I was struggling to find any kind of a fiefdom that I could rule over. And everyone's looking for their thing that they can be in charge of. As a child, everyone's trying to find the thing where they can feel like, you know, that's, they're in charge. The point being that the more you think about how big God is, sometimes he becomes somewhat hard to wrap your mind around or to wrap your arms around. Now, why do I bring that up right now? Because the solution for me, the thing that helped me incredibly, was not to, not to try to think of all of God's bigness all at once, but to think of Jesus Christ and his humanity as he became something that we could wrap our minds around. 
he became something that his disciples literally could wrap their arms around. John himself could rest his head on Jesus' breast. He could live life with him. He could physically interact and live life with him. Now that's somebody that you could get a hold of because literally he had become the unique God-man. Literally he was living life, eating, experiencing emotions, the full range of human emotion. He was growing. He was spending time with people. I think God, this is, this is way beyond the scope of, <laughs> of our message. I think we needed Jesus to have been incarnated. There's lots of ways. God could have, he could have come up with some other kind of a plan. He didn't have to allow Jesus to live life with people, to teach people directly. There had to have been a sacrifice for man's sin because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So we know there had to be a sacrifice. But there didn't have to be that period of time where Jesus for 33 years walked planet Earth. Didn't have to be that way. But why was it that way? I think part of it was so that God could be made relatable in a way that we could wrap our minds around a little bit. And so I'm not suggesting that you need to forget about the bigness of God, but I I am suggesting that sometimes making God a little bit smaller by thinking about who Jesus was might make him a little bit more relatable to you as you're thinking about. It's easy to think about talking to Jesus. You can read about all kinds of interactions where people had conversations with Jesus. So if you're struggling with prayer, you're struggling to get this sense of a personal interaction with the God of the universe, just imagine that you're praying to Jesus. Imagine that he's, he's there to respond through his word. And the more I've imagined it that way, the closer I've, the closer I've gotten to him. And I'm not suggesting that that will work for everybody. Just that's a total aside here as we think about the Son of God has come. I think that is part of why he came so that we would have a little bit of an ability to relate to and wrap our minds around God himself as he gave us his own example. That's why he lived with us for that time so that he could be an example to us, an example that we could relate to and that we could be impacted by that ministry that he had primarily there for the last three years of his, of his life. So the Son of God has come, reference to the person, deity, and humanity of Christ, and of course the work of Christ. There's some, John, this is shorthand. There's more to this than just the Son of God came, but why did he come? What did he accomplish? So the idea is Jesus came, he completed his mission, and the impact of this continues. That's what John is getting at with this phrase, he, the Son of God, has come. He came, he completed the mission, and the impact of this continues because he has given us an understanding. Now, this is the only time that John uses the word understanding in this letter. It's one of the few times he uses it at all, but it's the only time he's used it in this letter, and it refers to the ability to comprehend and reason with one's mind. It literally means he has given us a mind. That's actually, the word could be literally translated mind. He has given us a mind. But it's referring to the ability to comprehend and reason with one's mind. Now, it's in the perfect tense. This was a completed past event with enduring effects in the present. He gave us that understanding 
the ability to comprehend and reason, and it continues into the present to have an effect in the present. He's given us the ability to discern and understand eternal things as a byproduct of our being regenerated or being born again, that we have now access to the ability to make sense of spiritual matters through the new nature that we never had the ability to discern before. And so, a little bit longer way of saying this, the new birth made possible through Jesus' sacrifice, it provided the ability to understand certain truths and access to a new way of thinking that reflects God's way of thinking. So he gave us access to a way of thinking that's not natural. It's not identified with who we were in Adam or with our flesh. It's a new way of thinking. It's access to that. I say access because God doesn't guarantee that we'll think that way. He says that when we're walking under the influence of his spirit, we'll think that way, but he doesn't guarantee that that will be true all of the time. And so as has been said around here for years, you were effectively wired for sound. You couldn't hear before, but now you can. Now you can make sense of things that otherwise you hadn't been able to make sense of. And this is what Paul is referring to or refers to as the mind of Christ. He's given us an understanding. The ability to think with a spiritual mindedness that is a product or wrought by the new nature. This is what Paul is talking about. 1 Corinthians two fifteen through 16. He says, he but he who is spiritual. So there's a condition on this. Meaning in any moment you may or may not be spirit led, spirit directed. But the one who is, that person judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? So in a moment of walking in dependence on God's spirit, in that moment, the mind of Christ is, what's de- is what is directing your life. So if Christ is directing, you don't have any judgment that you need to be concerned about by anyone else. Because God is never going to direct your life in a way that's anything less than perfectly So there might be criticism, there might be accusations, there might be an assault made by others about the way your life is going, but you have no sense of needing to face their judgment or be concerned about their judgment if it's God's mind or way of thinking that is directing presently your manner of living. That manner of living is absolutely right because God is absolutely right all of the time, not just some of the time. That's what he concludes there with, but we have the mind of Christ. But here is that volitional part of it. You're not forced to think with the mind of Christ. Your thinking can be and should be influenced by the mind of Christ, manifested by the Spirit of God working in your life. It should, but it isn't automatic. And that's why Paul says in Philippians 2.5, he says, let, allow, stop preventing, stop resisting that mind being in you. Now, what kind of mind was that? the mind that was also in Christ Jesus, a divine way of thinking. Stop preventing that from happening in your life. So positionally, the believer always has access to this manner of thinking. That's why you have the perfect tense there. He has given us an understanding, the ability to understand. That, that's made possible because the Son of God came and he made salvation available. He's writing to those who had already appropriated that salvation that was available through faith alone in Christ and now they have access to this way of living or way of understanding that the Spirit of God provides. 
But practically, though it's available, this access is always available, that divine mindset is only present when you're living a life that's in fellowship or directed by the Spirit of God. Now we have this word, that. So the Son of God has come. We know that cognitively. It's reliable because it came from God himself. Remember that one of the primary attacks on Jesus was that he wasn't the Son of God. So it's important that they understood that, that they had placed their personal faith in that. And then he had given us an understanding, the capacity or access to a way of living that would be completely different than what they had previously known. So he has given us an understanding or given us the possibility of that, that. So that identifies a statement of purpose. With what objective or expectation in mind, you could say. So he, the Son of God has come and he has given us an understanding with what expectation in mind. And this is a climactic summary of the whole purpose behind John's letter now. And this phrase right here, that we may know him who is true. And this is fascinating because there's a shift in language now. You say, what? He just got done talking about knowing cognitively that the Son of God had come. He had just gotten done talking about, in verses 18, knowing cognitively things. Verse 19, knowing cognitively things. Based on the testimony and the authenticity of Jesus Christ and the reliability of that supernatural witness. So he's just saying one more thing. What's the big deal? We may know. But the the big deal is that he changes the language here, it would be very easy to miss if you didn't study it closely because after using oida with all pr- three previous conclusory statements, John now selects gnosko, the other primary word for know. He says that we may know and now he uses gnosko. Now gnosko defined means to have knowledge about something or some, someone or something that is acquired through experience. This word is not focused on information that is learned in an academic setting. Those were the things that you've been told or taught. Now, whether you appropriate them or not, that's the question. So these other three summaries, we know, we know, we know, all true, but the question John has been getting at in the whole letter is, will you appropriate by faith the truths that you've been made aware of through the teaching of God himself as I'm a conduit through, for him to speak? Will you, experientially, will you live life appropriating this incredible position and access that you have as a child of God? Will you experience this in the present tense, in a moment by moment? Will this come to represent your manner of living, your way of living, your state of being, that you're presently knowing Him in an experiential tasting and seeing kind of a way. Will you do that? That's been the encouragement of the entire book and that's what John is getting at. Present tense. So that we may know him presently. That this would represent or reflect our present state of being. That we would be experientially knowing him who is true. And you think about Paul Philippians 3.20, he gets it. He understands that there's no real living from living life with him. And he says effectively the same thing. This is his aspirational, this is his, this is his objective. This is his desire for his own life. 
He says in Philippians 3.10, many of you are familiar with it, but he says, that I may know him. And everything that comes with knowing him. But that's the same word, gnosko, there. That I would know him experientially. That I would, I would be able to experience the impact that the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and the conformity to his death should have in my life. Not that I would just know that those things should be true, but that I would, I would know him in a way where I'm experiencing the change that that should have in my life. As I live life with him, that I get to know him more. Like any relationship, the only way that you really will get to know somebody is if you experience more and more life with them. If you want to get to know me, it's going to be real hard if you avoid me. It's also going to be really hard if you're angry at me all the time. You're going to have to forgive me and love me and then draw nearer to me if you want to get to know me better. If you're bitter and resentful toward me or you want nothing to do with me, you're not going to get to know me better. That's a fact. The same thing is true with your Savior. If you want to get to know him better, you're going to have to draw closer to him You're going to have to lean into him. You're going to have to learn to depend on him. You're going to have to trust him to dictate and direct your life, to give you direction, to lead you in the paths of righteousness. Not because you're focused on righteous living or right living, but because you're focused on his leading. And as he leads, he automatically will lead you in the paths of righteousness. That's what he's interested in. So when you're letting him lead, that will happen. You won't have to focus on it at all, as I mentioned earlier. This is what Paul gets, though. We may know him who is true. This is the whole point of this letter. Now, him who is true (coughs) could be translated literally the true one. The primary purpose behind Jesus' coming was to provide access to intimate fellowship with the true one both now and for all eternity. His primary purpose in coming, I have two things here. It was not to teach you divine truth. That wasn't the primary purpose. That's a byproduct of learning that truth, is that you could have that intimate fellowship with the true one. But the ultimate objective is that you would have fellowship with the true one. Same thing about rescuing you from hell. Of course, that was necessary, Of course, teaching you divine truth was necessary, but that wasn't the primary objective. The end objective was that you would live life with him, that you would experience fellowship with him. Remember, if we go back to the beginning of this, God is a relational God. He built you to have a relationship with him. That's his objective for you. Yes, a byproduct of that would be that you would serve him. A byproduct of that would be that you would shine his light to those who don't know him, so that they could be introduced to him. For what purpose? So they could experience a relationship with him too. So they could live life with him too. So they could spend all of eternity with him too. It all comes back to relationship. God is a relational God. He wants to live life with you. And that's what John has been saying over and over and over again in this letter. So we are in him that we may know him who is true. Now, him who is true, again, that was the idea. Now, how do I do this? Some people, you're saying, great message, great preaching. I don't know how to do that. 
Now, I tried to explain how it worked for me. I don't know if that'll work for you, but I do know that it's going to involve hearing the Word of God. You're going to have to hear the Word of God. It started with the gospel. You're going to have to have responded to the gospel. You're not going to have been given that access to understanding that believers have been given if you're not a believer. So it's going to start with, will you accept the testimony or the witness of Jesus Christ that he was the only solution to your sinfulness and that when he died, he paid your debt in full? Will you put 100% of your confidence in that? So that's what it starts with. You then gain this experiential knowledge by living life with him. Now, what does that mean? Okay, that's a, that's a big phrase, live life with him. It means to include him, depend on him, allow him to direct and teach you. But think about including him. It just means to not forget about him as you go about your life. To let your thoughts be affected by and considering him. To consider what he wants as you're making decisions throughout every day including him in the sense of you can go to work without leaving him at home. You can go to the event that you're going to, to the activity you're going to, to the basketball game you're going to. You can bring him with you to that in the sense that you're including him in what you're doing. You're saying, even as you step out onto the basketball court, you can be saying, Lord, help me to do this as unto you in a way that would bring you glory direct in my words and my thoughts as I go about even something as mundane as an athletic contest so that I could be a light for you even while I'm doing something like this. It could be something like getting in the car and instead of just driving to some place with you, spacing out everything, being at risk to yourself and everyone else on the road, Raise your hands if that's you. Okay. (laughs) Be at risk to yourself and everybody else because you're praying while you're doing that. Because you could. There's many different small applications of what it means to include him in the affairs of your life, but just every aspect of your life, whatever it is, you can include him. Walking the dog, brushing your teeth, taking a shower. I once had a pastor tell me, as I shook his hand on the way out the door, he said, I was praying for, I was praying for you in the shower this morning. I thought, skip me next time. No. <laughs> you don't experience anything by observing from a distance. You're either going to dive in, you're either going to grab a hold of that carrot cake and take a big bite, Man, that sounds good right now, doesn't it? Who's got some carrot cake? You're going to take a big bite or you're not. It's not going to do you any good just looking at it from a distance, though, and admiring what a wonderful carrot cake. What an exquisite carrot cake. There's none like it. There's never been any other like it. It's available for me to bite into, to taste, to experience. How foolish would it be to have access to something as wonderful as your God and never experience Him? 
never live life with him, never include him. So we got to keep moving. We are in him who is true so that we may know him who is true because we are in him who is true. Now, although some hold that this refers to Christ, I believe that this is still in reference to God the Father. It doesn't make any difference, though. We're Trinitarian. We believe that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, that God is inseparable, that we have a triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they have different functions, but they're indivisible. They're one God, and so it's really hard. There's no reason to nitpick at things like that. But we are in him who is true. Uh, I believe that because John takes that approach in his gospel. So that's why I think that's what he's still referring to here. Uh, he says in John seventeen three, and this is eternal life. So the same concepts, almost the exact same language, that we may know you. Now, who's the you? Because we're talking about we're, we are in him who is true, and we know him who is true. Now, who is the you? Well, John, at least in John, the gospel, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it can't be Jesus because it's saying that the true God is the one who sent Jesus. So would I waste, would I, not waste, I guess, but would I spend a lot of time on this? No, this is Jesus speaking, though, that he's saying that eternal life is that they may know you. And so that's just a, I don't think it's, it's super critical, but this point is critical. While this is critical positional truth, the focus here is likely present fellowship. So we are in him who is true. Now, it's true positionally that you're in him who is true. The moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you're now identified as being in Christ. But this is a little bit different flavor here. This is we are in him who is true. This is present tense. This is talking about this idea that we can presently be experiencing fellowship with God that we're described as we may know him who is true and we can be in him who is true. We can presently be experiencing life with him. We can be experientially knowing him at any moment in time. At any specific moment, we can be knowing him experientially, the one who is true. And so that's why it's in the present tense. Indicative mood stated or presented as a fact. So while the believer is presently experiencing or knowing God, he is presently described as being in him. And that's the way I would take this because that's, I think, how John explains it even in First John here. We'll see it a little bit later. This could also represent the present assurance of your position that comes from presently experiencing intimacy, though it has nothing to do with security. What I mean by that is, imagine that if you're presently experiencing life with God, and you're presently experiencing that intimacy with him, doesn't that give you assurance that you're his child, that you're walking in union with him, that you're living life with him? Doesn't that draw you nearer or give you more confidence in your faith? Well, it could. It should, in that sense. It has nothing to do with whether you are or not positionally in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, you are positionally in God, whether you're experiencing that in any particular moment or not, whether you're having assurance of that or not. 
You are secure in Christ because God keeps his promises and he's a faithful God. Security is something that is a fixed fact the moment of your faith. It has nothing to do with your present awareness or assurance of that at any particular point in time. But I'll tell you what, if you're living life in experiencing in the present that relational closeness with your father, are you going to be convinced or even more sure that you're his child? Well, yeah. You're living life with him. You're spending time with him. You're going to be closer to him in that sense, and you're going to have more confidence in that relationship than, than you might otherwise have. So positionally, this represents the Christian's present state of being regardless of his present practice or appropriation of this reality. So we are in him who is true. That is always positionally true. I don't, that's not the focus here. I think the focus is on presently experiencing life with him and practically appropriating by faith that access to that intimacy that God wants to have with you. But it is a fixed fact that positionally the Christian is in him by identification, if you're talking about identification truth. Now, there's no success in the Christian life apart from this realization. So God wants you to presently appropriate this relational closeness that he desires to have with you and has made available to you. But whether you do that or not, it has nothing to do with whether or not you're his child. But if you don't do that, you're never going to experience Christian life successfully the way that God wanted you, you to. And by successfully, I mean in a way that experiences the maximum joy that only comes from spending life in closeness with him. Now, in his son. So we are in him who is true, believing a reference to the Father, and in his son, Jesus Christ. So here's an alternative translation, and I think this captures the overall idea here. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. The moment we put our faith in Christ, that's how we have access to God, through faith in the finished work of Jesus. There's no access to God apart from faith in Christ. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me or except through me. I am the door. By me, if anyone enters in, he shall be saved. Jesus is the one that gives us access to the Father, and that is what John communicated in the book of John, the Gospel of John, and that's what he's communicating here in this letter too. We are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. This continues to emphasize present fellowship, though it is also an absolutely fixed positional truth. But the focus of the letter continues to be, he's not going to change it now at the end, it continues to be that we are presently experiencing the Father by presently experiencing his Son in an intimate personal relationship. To abide in God is to abide in his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what he's been getting at. That's what he's been promoting. That's what he's continuing to focus on here. John previously equated being in him with abiding in him. This letter has been about experiential, experientially knowing God, living life with God. It hasn't been written about being positionally in Christ. So he already talked about being him and he equated it to abiding in him. Just as the branch is to abide in the vine in John 15, that's how you're in Christ practically. You're in him positionally by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. 
That's how you're in him positionally. But this isn't about that. Here's 1 John where he already covered this material. 1 John 2, 5 through 6. But whoever keeps his word, what's that talking about? Present walk of faith. Truly the love of God is perfected in him. In that moment, he's presently living the life that God had planned for him. By this we know that we are in him. In him positionally? No. In him practically. He who says he abides in him ought also to walk just as he walks. So when we're walking in a manner that is consistent with God's character as it's being produced by God's spirit in us, in those moments we could say practically I'm experiencing that intimate fellowship that God wants to have with me. The focus, again, not about position in Christ, though that is also true. And there's no reason you can't even, you could say principle, not text. You could take this and you could say the principle is true, even if that's not what the context or what the text is getting at. So in his son, Jesus Christ, Abiding in him is not a statement of position, it's a statement of present practice. Just got done saying that. Being in his son is different from the Pauline concept of being in Christ, which is focused on position. John's use of in his son is more of a present sanctification reality. However, it presupposes justification as its basis. You could not be in his son presently in terms of intimate fellowship apart from being in Christ positionally through faith alone in Christ alone at a point of justification. There is no practical sanctification without justification having occurred before. So I hope that is clear. This is the true God and eternal life we finish with. This represents a continuation of thought. It continues to refer to Jesus Christ. So he is the true God and eternal life is how many translations have this. He, Jesus Christ, is the true God and eternal life. So when you're getting at that, John has previously associated present intimacy with Jesus, with present enjoyment of life, of a life characterized by a godly manner and quality of living. So when you talk about this life is accessed through this present relationship with Jesus Christ, he is the true God and he's the one who makes real living or real life possible. That's what we're talking about with eternal life. We're not, talking in, we're not talking about the length, though there is a length aspect to it. The focus is on the quality of life in the present, this godly quality and manner of living that is made possible when we live life in intimate fellowship with God as God directs in our lives. As God's Spirit directs in our lives, we can experience God's quality and manner of living. We can be partakers of that divine nature. We can have access to that way of living right now in time. That's what John was getting at earlier in this very chapter, just a few verses earlier. In verses 11 through 12, he says, And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, a godly quality and nature of living. And this life is in his Son. That relationship with his Son is how we get a hold of that. He who has the Son, who, he who presently has the Son, presently has access to or is experiencing that life. He who does not have, presently have, the Son of God does not have life. There's no way for a Christian to not presently, positionally, have the Son of God. 
The one who has put his faith in Christ presently has Christ positionally all of the time. There's there's no way for the Christian to not experience that. So in writing to Christians, the one who is not presently experiencing life is because they're not presently experiencing a fellowship with God. They're not presently experiencing that intimacy with God, though I will say this is absolutely an accurate statement of positional truth as well. The one who has the Son has put their faith in the Son of God. That person has life. I am the way, the truth, and their life. There is no life apart from faith in Christ. The one who does not have the Son, has not put his faith in Jesus Christ, does not have access to the abundant life, to the life that God alone made made available through the person and work of his Son. It's just that that's not been the focus of what John is talking about right here. The emphasis is on the quality of life, not the quantity of life of life. Present fellowship is synonymous in a sense with eternal life. This is eternal life. This is how we access this. It's in his son Jesus Christ. It's made available to us. So you're thinking about a summary of this whole letter. It's come full circle. The very first chapter the very first chapter begins with chapter 1 verse 2. It says, this life was manifested through what? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. We have seen and bear witness. Now we declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So, started with eternal life. Then he moved to fellowship. Verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us, but truly it's fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, that I'm writing about. That's the focus of my letter. And then it moved to what? Joy. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So if you're talking about the joy that can be found through living life in intimate fellowship with the Father, he's ending the letter the same way that he started it by focusing on you can only get that by living life with him and experiencing life with him and allowing that joy then to be a byproduct of of being in his proximity or being in closeness to him. So we started with these amazing truths. God is a relational God. He designed you to have a relationship with him. God wants you to know him in an intimate and experiential way. He wants to know you intimately and experientially. And we are just amazed by that. We're overwhelmed by it. We should be. It's critical that we would understand these truths because full joy is found with him. So if we're ending with this idea of the whole book has been about joy can only be found by living life in intimate fellowship with him. Through experiencing life with him, you are experiencing the full joy that's available to you. You can't do that or experience that joy while at the same time excluding him. So the question becomes, will you choose to include him and enjoy close, intimate fellowship with him or will you not? Will you choose to exclude him from your life? And Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. Again, talking about the quality of that life, not just, not just the length of that life. So that kind of life is available, but it's only available if it's spent in his presence. As the word of God says, 
in your presence is fullness of joy. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time we could spend together. Pray that it would encourage those who are here, that it could be useful to them in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.